We now bring you the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast, featuring the late Dr. Harold B. Seitler, founding pastor of Tabernacle Baptist Church and Ministries in Greenville, South Carolina. And now, today's edition of the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. Matthew chapter number 27, with your Bible open, please. I want to bring you a message on the resurrection of our Lord and the significance of it, the meaning of it, and so on. Again, I say it's a joy to see you. This auditorium is completely filled, or maybe a half a dozen or so seats scattered around, but I'm so glad you're here, and I hope that you'll make yourself at home and make yourself comfortable. Uh, We don't want to crowd anybody. God forbid that we do that. We want you to be comfortable uh, in the auditorium while you worship with us, and come again any Sunday. Uh, We will do our best to make you feel you're welcome and at home in our services, the Sunday school, or the preaching hours, morning or night, or Wednesday night as the Lord leads. And if you visit, you're just as welcome as you can be in our services today. And our people, we're proud of you. God bless each of you. Now, in in Matthew 27, we have the divine record of the crucifixion of our Lord. I suspect the greatest event in all history. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. All night the Lord has been now in the house of Caiaphas the high priest. And he's gone before the the Sanhedrin and been examined and criticized and tried and accused and indicted every way that a man could possibly be indicted. Our Lord was by the Sanhedrin court in the house of Caiaphas the high priest. When the morning was come, the chief priest and the elders uh, took counsel against Jesus, how they might uh, put him to death. And then they bound him and delivered Jesus to Pontius Pilate, uh, the governor, the Roman governor. Judas, who had betrayed the Lord, is now receiving the sting of remorse and the sting of his conscience. And he's now fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah that prophesied that the Lord will be betrayed by one of his own for 30 pieces of silver. Jeremiah had prophesied that and they took the 30 pieces of silver and the price of him that was valued, uh, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them to a potter's field uh, as the Lord appointed. In other words, they bought a cemetery with that 30 pieces of silver that Judas had now thrown down at the feet of the ones to whom he had sold the Lord. Then he went out of the temple and departed and hanged himself. Judas, one of the 12, Yet the son of perdition went out and committed suicide after the betrayal of our Lord. When Jesus stood before Pilate, the Roman governor, there are seven immortal questions of Pilate that are directed to the Savior that you might be wise to mark in your Bible in Matthew 27. In verse 11, Pilate said, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered, Thou sayest. In verse number 13, Pilate said, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? And he answered him, not a word. And then in verse 17, Pilate said, Whom will ye that I release unto you? Barabbas or Jesus, which is called the Messiah. And they cried, release Barabbas. And then number four in verse 21, Pilate said, Whither of the twain will ye that I release unto you? And they cried, Barabbas. And then in verse 22, the fifth statement of Pilate, what shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? And they all say unto Pilate, 
let him be crucified. Then in verse 23, the sixth word of Pilate, what evil, why, what evil hath he done? And they cried out the more, let him be crucified. And then the seventh immortal question and statement of Pilate in verse 24, I am innocent of the blood of this just person, see ye to it. Now that is a tremendous thing that in this chapter you'd find seven immortal questions or seven words of Pilate the Roman governor. A man not directly related to what's going on. I don't think you would blame Pilate with the death of our Lord. It's deeper than that, more profound than that. I think the real enemy of the cross is found in that Sanhedrin court, in the house of Caiaphas, the religious fathers and the chief priests and the elders, they are the ones who had long since began to plot the death of the Savior. And after the garden of Gethsemane, when he was betrayed by Judas Iscariot, they spent the whole night indicting him. And now the next day, when the morning was come, carry him before the Roman governor for permission to crucify and to carry out that awful thing that they had plotted and planned to do in the crucifixion of our Lord. So Pilate released Barabbas unto them, and then he said they scourged Jesus, and then he delivered Jesus to the Jews to be crucified. And then the soldiers of the governor, the centurion band, later on the, the captain of these uh, hundred soldiers, the centurions, uh, said truly this must have been the Son of God. But now the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him of, the, of his robe without a seam and put on him a scarlet robe of mockery. And when they had planted a crown of thorns, they put it upon his brow, we're told. And no doubt pressed that brow, uh, that crown upon his brow until a thousand fountains were opened in the house of David and the blood ran down his face and dropped upon his body. And a reed in his right hand they placed. Then they bowed the knee before him and mocked him in all manner of mockery. But among the things they said in mocking the Savior was, Hail, King of the Jews. They didn't mean that. He is indeed the King of the Jews. No question in my mind about that. He is indeed the Jewish Messiah. No question in my mind about that. But these soldiers are mocking the Savior. And they said as they mocked him, Hail, King of the Jews. They spit on him and took the reed out of his hand and smote him with the reed that they placed in his hand. And after they had mocked him, they took the robe, a scarlet robe off him and put his own garment on him and led him away to crucify the Prince of Glory. And as they came out, they found a man of serene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear the cross of the Savior. And I could almost see that episode as Jesus bearing his own cross upon his own shoulders uh, makes his way northward uh, toward the Damascus gate of the ancient city. And out of that uh, Damascus gate to Calvary's brow, Golgotha, the place of a skull, where he's to be nailed to that tree and lifted up upon a gory a mountaintop there to die uh, a, a vicarious death for me and you. They gave him, uh, when they came to the place called Golgotha, they, uh, to, to say a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink, mingle with gall, and he tasted thereof, and he wouldn't drink. Somebody in the crowd said, maybe we can dull his senses. Maybe the agony and the pain will not be quite as great. 
if we give him vinegar mixed with gall, some kind of a dope, an opium to dull the senses of pain on the part of our Savior. But when the Lord recognized what it was, he would not accept it. He would not drink it. He faced the agony and the suffering of the cross without any help from any of his enemies. They crucified him, we're told. They parted his garments, cast in lots within the range of his eye as the Son of God hangs upon the cross with his eye. He can look down at the foot of the cross and there four men gamble for that garment, the only thing of any value that he possessed in this life. They parted my garment among them and upon my vesta, the Bible prophesied, they did cast lots. And sitting down, they watched the Savior as he died upon the cross. And they set over his head his charge, his acquisition written. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now we're told that there were two thieves crucified with the Savior, the one on the right and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled the Savior, wagging their heads at the Savior and mocking the Lord Jesus by saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildeth it up again in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God as you claim to be, they mockingly said, Come down from the cross and we will believe. Likewise, the chief priest and others mocked him, and the scribes and the elders joined in and said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save, and how true that is. I mark you, my soul, had Jesus come down from the cross. I believe he had the power to have done that. I believe the Lord could have spoken the word, and a legion of angels would have instantly appeared upon Golgotha and delivered the suffering Savior. But had the Lord saved himself, not a one of us would have been saved. Because he died upon the cross, we shall not die. Because he didn't save himself, I am now saved. He saved others himself he cannot save. If he be the, uh, the, the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross, they mock, and we will believe him. They were liars. Uh, a greater miracle than that transpired just 72 hours later. When Jesus walked out of that grave, having been resurrected from the grave, they didn't believe that. The very ones that now mock him at Calvary live to see the resurrection and hear the report of the resurrection. Did they repent? Did they believe? Did they then bow their knee to the Savior and confess him with their tongues? Of course not. They say, come down, we'll believe. They would not have believed. Three days later, he did not come down, but he came out walked out of the grave triumphant over death, hell, and the grave. And yet the same crowd rejected him then as they've always rejected him down through the years. We will believe. No. He trusted in God. Let God deliver him. That's exactly what God is doing. God is delivering his son to the cross. In order that delivering Jesus to the cross, he might deliver me and you from the cross and from hell and from the guilt of sin and from the penalty of sin and from the jaws of hell. And had the Lord God delivered his son, you and I would have gone to hell without a savior. But God delivers Jesus to the cross that he might deliver me and you from the regions of the damned. The thieves also that were crucified with the savior mocked him and derided him. And then from the sixth hour, he was nailed to the cross at the ninth hour. But from the sixth hour, after three hours, there was a supernatural darkness that engulfed the whole land. That darkness is a miracle. 
That darkness is a judgment of God upon Jerusalem and Judea and upon those people for their wicked deed. And that six hour, that darkness prevailed for three long hours. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried, saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God turned his back upon his son and delivered him to die. Delivered him to receive the full execution of the judgment of God in his body to save me and you from the ruin and the ravage of sin. And when those that stood about the cross heard Jesus cry, My God, my God, they said, uh, This man calleth for Elijah. And immediately one of them took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it upon a reed and gave him to drink. Imagine that. With the fever raging, with his lips swollen, with his lips broken, with the blood running down from his broken lips, with his head crowned with a crown of thorns and blood covering his body, with his back scourged with the Roman lash until it didn't look human. Can you imagine the cruelty of taking a sponge and dipping that in vinegar and putting that sponge up to the lip of our Lord and the sponge of the water of the vinegar rather running out of the sponge to stain and to, st and to bruise that broken lip and to excite the pain of those broken lip and that fevered brow, adding insult to injury and agony to the pain that already the Prince of Glory uh, is suffering. And then Jesus cried uh, with a loud voice and gave up the spirit and died upon the cross. What a tremendous thing that is. Now when Jesus died, we're told that the veil in the temple was rent from the top to the bottom. God reached down his majestic hand and tore that veil in Solomon's temple, not from the, uh, the bottom to the top, but the top to the bottom. It was rent apart. And uh, there was an earthquake in Jerusalem, a savage earthquake in Jerusalem. As a result of that earthquake, uh, the rocks rent and all of that, but the graves were open. Of dead people, the graves were open. God had a purpose in that. And then three days later, those dead people came out of the grave. Oh, what a testimony that for three days those dead bodies could be seen in those open graves, opened by the earthquake. And then when the Lord came out of the grave, the first fruits of them which slept, then all those dead bodies of the Old Testament saints arose from the grave, we're told in verse 52, and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into Jerusalem and appeared to people in the marketplace and the streets of Jerusalem. What a miracle that is. You say, oh, Brother Harold, who do you think these people were that came out of the grave? Well, I don't know. I know they were Old Testament saints. I know not a sinner at this time is to be resurrected. The resurrection of the sinner will take place in the white throne judgment. And that's when the lost is to be resurrected and carried before the white throne judgment. I conclude here are saints in the Old Testament economy. They came out of the grave. Now, possibly David might have been in that number. Maybe Abraham's in that number. You go to Jerusalem today, they carry down to Hebron, and they say the grave of Abraham is in Hebron. But it could easily be that Abraham came out in Matthew 27. They carry down to Bethlehem to show you the grave of Rachel. But it can easily be that Rachel was one of these Old Testament saints. They came out of the grave. The bodies of many 
of the saints, we're told, in verse 53, uh, uh, was resurrected and appeared in Jerusalem to many people. Now, I accept that. I believe that. You say, oh, Brother Harold, I just can't accept that. Well, you don't believe the Bible because there it is. You're looking at it in your Bible. And that's what the Bible says. Actually, here is the first fruit of the resurrection. Now, the harvest of the resurrection will be yours and mine at the second advent of the Lord. The gleaning of the resurrection will be the tribulation saints. The first fruits has already been gleaned and already been gathered out of the grave. And these dead ones that came out of the grave in Matthew 27 went to heaven with the Lord 40 days later. When Jesus went to heaven, they went to heaven with him. Now, some of those, all those that were resurrected in the New Testament died another time. Lazarus died twice. The widow's son died twice. The ruler's daughter died twice. They were resurrected and then died again. But these in Matthew 27 were resurrected to die no more. They are a type of your resurrection and mine at the second coming of our Lord. Now when the centurion and his hundred soldiers with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and saw the resurrection, saw the veil rid in the temple, they feared greatly and the centurion said truly, this was the son of God that died. Many of the women were there, beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee and ministered unto him. And among them was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Mary the mother of Zebedee's children, the three Marys. And when even was come, a rich man called Joseph of Arimathea uh, went to Pilate and requested the body of the Lord. And he uh, begged Pilate the body, and Pilate granted the body, and Joseph and Nicodemus prepared the body for burial. What a moment that must have been. With tender loving hands, Nicodemus and Joseph prepared that body and gently carried it to the grave of Joseph that had never been used and laid it there in a sepulcher, we're told in verse number 60, and then rolled a great stone to the mouth of that grave and departed. And there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulcher. There is the setting for the glorious resurrection of our Lord. He's now dead. His body has been prepared for burial. Now I don't accept the idea that our Lord simply swooned or went into a state of unconsciousness. When Jesus was lowered from the cross, he was dead. When Jesus said, it is finished, he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. That's death. Jesus died on the cross. And when they buried the Savior, they buried a dead Savior, a dead Jesus. No question in my mind about that. And if you don't believe that, then you've denied a basic elementary fact of Scripture. They roll the great stone at the mouth of the grave and go their way, having discharged their duty in the burial of their Lord and their Savior. But Mary, Magdalene, and the other Mary sat against the sepulchre. Now, the next day, following the day of the preparation, the chief priests of the Pharisees came to Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said while he was yet alive, after three days, I will rise. Command, therefore, that the sepulchre be made sure through the third day, put a command of guards, lest his disciples steal his body away by night and say to the people that he's risen from the dead. 
The old devil's scheming, isn't he? The devil's trying to lay a foundation of deception, is he not? And he's, uh, the devil is suggesting now that his disciples will steal the body away. So put a guard at the grave, lest the disciples steal his body away. And then uh, the last situation will be worse than the first. Now that's a sad thing. And yet the devil is that kind. And Pilate said, you have your watch, go your way, make it sure. So they went and made the sepulcher sure. But that didn't stop the glory of that first Sunday morning. Not by any means. No, nothing could contain the prey within that sepulcher. Nothing could thwart the plan of God or destroy the purpose of the Almighty. Death could not contain its prey. The resurrection of our Lord is a vital part of God's great program of redemption. All is finished now with the exception of the capstone, the keystone. And the capstone and the keystone is the resurrection. And now that resurrection must also faithfully transpire just as much so as his suffering, as much so as his death. So must the Savior come out of the grave as he said he would. Well, now what happened? At the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the sepulchre. And behold, there was a great earthquake. Here's another one. The earth seems to be vibrating with these earthquakes at this particular time. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and rolled back the stone from the door. And the angel of God sat down on that rock of ages. What a spectacle that is. An open grave, a great stone rolled out of the way, and an eternal angel calmly seated upon that eternal stone. His countenance was like lightning. His clothing was white as snow. And because of the fear of this mighty angel, the guards shook, terrified, terror-stricken. The soldiers shook in their boots and became petrified like dead men petrified with fear when they saw the angel of the Lord. Now my soul, I'm going to see an angel one day. I've never seen an angel. I've never spoken to an angel. I've never been associated with an angel. But I'm going to see an angel one of these days. But it's not going to react with me that way because of the confidence of grace and because of the knowledge of the Savior. When I see the angel, I'll be as calm as I am right now before you. But here are wicked men that had crucified the Prince of Glory. And when they saw that angel, they became petrified with fear and tremble in their boots because they, know, they knew what wicked men indeed they are. And the angel answered and said to the women, Fear not, I know that ye seek Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here. He is not here. We've been preaching that 2,000 years. And one day, he, the first fruits, will culminate my resurrection in the harvest of the resurrection someday. He is not here. Now, the chief priest sought to make it 
permanent. They put a stone at the mouth. They put a guard to seal it. But he's not here. They said, he can't come out. He's dead. But he's not here. Something has happened. And the angels report to the two berries, he is not here. They said, for he is risen, as he said. And he said he would arise. He does arise. So the angels say, come now, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth forth before them into Galilee. There you shall see him. Lo, I have told you, go tell his disciples. And the two Marys departed quickly to give the report to the disciples. And when the disciples heard it, Peter and John ran to the sepulchre, as you well know, and verified and certified the fact that he is not here. He is risen, as he said. Jesus lives. He lives. Wait a minute, preacher. Wait a minute. Have you ever seen the Lord? Has he ever visited the tabernacle? Have you ever seen the nail prints in his hands or thrust your hand into his side? No. No, I've never had that opportunity. Possibly someday I shall. You remember how Thomas said, I will not believe except I see the nail prints and thrust my hand into his side. The next Sunday, Thomas saw the nail prints. The next Sunday, Thomas thrust his hand into his side. And Jesus said, Thomas, blessed art thou, you believe, having seen. But more blessed are they in 1974 who believe, having not seen. And that's why I stand. I believe, having not seen. I believe the Lord came out of the grave as he said, he is not here, he is risen. Jesus lives. He lives. Now, where does Jesus live? Why does Jesus live? Why did Jesus come out of the grave? I said a moment ago, he came out of the grave as the capstone and the seal of all God's great work of redemption. Without a resurrection, the cross is meaningless. Without a resurrection, salvation is empty. Without a resurrection, the gospel has no power. Without a resurrection, there is no hope for the dead in Christ. Without a resurrection, there is no permanency for the church of God. Without a resurrection, there is no hope of life everlasting. Then without a resurrection, there is no high priest at the right hand of the throne of God on high. And therefore, my salvation is not secure. He came out of the grave to perpetuate and to culminate and to consummate everything that God started from the foundation of the world. The capstone, the seal, the climax of all of it. On the first day of the week, when he stepped forth out of that grave and later said to John, fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that was alive and was dead and am alive forevermore and have the keys of death and hell at my side. That's the Savior. Well, why did he come forth? Well, now, where is Jesus? Where does he live? Where does Jesus live today? I'd remind you, first of all, that he lives at the right hand of the throne of God on high, ever to live to make intercession for God's believing children. As my faithful high priest, as my faithful advocate, he knows me and confesses me before the throne of God's grace. 
Where does Jesus live? He lives at the right hand of the throne of God on high this very moment. He knows my name. He knows my preoccupation. He knows my rising up. He knows my setting down. He knows my pitfall. He knows my victory. He knows my weakness. He knows my virtues, though they be few. He knows more about me than my wife could ever learn about me. He's my faithful advocate. And when the devil comes and says that preacher is not genuine and that preacher is insincere, Jesus stands before the Father in my place as my advocate and reminds the Father that Lucifer is a devil from the beginning and that the preacher, the weak, is genuine and born again by the grace of God. Where does Jesus live? He lives at the right hand of the throne of God on high. Where does Jesus live? I remind you he lives at this mourner's bench to meet any trusting sinner that will come to accept and to receive the Lord Jesus as personal Savior. Any sinner in this building that will walk down this aisle today as a sinner recognizing your guilt, recognizing your need, and bow here at this mourner's bench shall discover that Jesus lives at this mourner's bench. And I don't care who you are or how vile your sin may be or how bound up by the feathers of iniquity you might be. I know one that's able to break the bond of iniquity. I know one that's able to heal the cancer of sin. I know one that's able to set the captive free. And you can discover at a mourner's bench that he lives. To set the captive free. Our Sunday school lesson said today, Oh, everyone that thirsteth. Our Sunday school lesson said today, Seek ye the Lord. While he may be found, call upon the Lord while he's near. He lives at the mourner's bench to save the trusting sinner that'll come to accept Jesus. What does Jesus live? I'd, remark, I'd remind you that he lives in that sitting room to give grace and comfort to that pilgrim whose body is worn and weakened and ravaged by disease and by old age. He's real. Go with me. Go with me and we shall sit down in a shutting room where there's a dear saint of God that one time sat upon these pews whose body now is wasted and diseased and broken and confined by weakness, physical infirmity. My dear soul, is Jesus real in this shut-in room? Without a choir to sing amazing grace. My soul, is Jesus real in this shut-in room? Without a pastor to preach the gospel. My soul, is Jesus real in this shut-in room? Without friends to encourage you. And that saint will clap a bony hand and say, Preacher, he's real in this room to comfort me. Where does Jesus live? He lives in this shut-in room to give grace to that one uh, shut in and wasted by the years. Where does Jesus live? I mark you, he lives at the graveside when we bury our loved one and we go the last mile of the way with them and we put their bodies beneath the ground and turn away broken and grieved and hurt and bruised by the wound of death. And we say to ourselves, we shall never survive this ordeal. We'll never come through it. And we stand there while they cover the remains of our loved one. We hear the clods hit that, empty, that box with a thud. And we think we'll die. We say we shall die. They'll have to bury me. They'll have to carry me away. But in that moment of destitution and desperation... 
the Savior lives to step at your side and take you by the hand and say, come on, son. I'll go with you. And I'll wipe the tears away. And I'll give you a shoulder upon which you can lean. And my word shall add grace and courage. Come, son, and I'll lead you. Where does he live? He lives at that graveside when you bury your loved ones. Yes. Where does Jesus live? He lives in this pulpit all along. I sense his divine presence to warm me and to elate me and to bless me. My preaching is not A, B, C. My preaching is not one, two, three. My preaching is not a dead ritual. Sometimes my preaching gets like fire burning in my bones. And I say, what's wrong with me? I say, what's happening to me? And then I think he lives in the pulpit to warm my heart and to enthuse my soul and to excite my grace and to stir my passions and to relight my soul. He lives. He lives in this pulpit to do what I need to have done for me. Oh, yes, he lives. You'll step out into a night someday and fear will grip you and the world shall crumble at your side. And you'll wonder, can I live through this night? Will I see the rise of another day? Will I see the light of another day? And the old devil tempts you to believe that this is the terminal. This is the finish. Sign off and forget religion. Sign off and forget that you're saved. But in that dark night, you'll discover Jesus lives. Oh, preacher, you're just an excited old man. If I was the only person in the world that ever got excited like I'm now excited, I might agree with you. But those that have gone before me have been excited as I'm excited. And those that are coming after me are excited as I'm excited. He is not here. He is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And if you go see the place, you'll see an empty garment. You'll see the headgear bound together in another place. You'll see the imprint of his body on that burial uh, 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 place. But he's not here. He is risen. As he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. Don't come and talk to me about Jesus being dead. Don't come and suggest to me that his Bible is vain and empty and that the church is in its dying moments. No. He that stood one day on the sand and announced to his disciples, upon this rock I shall build my church. He is alive today. And that same Savior has yet builded his church in 1974. As he started in, in Matthew 18. He's still building his church. And he'll build it until it's finished. He's alive. Jesus is alive. And is real. Now one other word. How does Jesus make himself real, preacher? 
How is it that you have this real, real, reality? How is it that you enjoy this assurance? How is it that you're so positive and dogmatic in your preaching? Maybe he is dead. Maybe churches are dying. Maybe there's nothing. No, no, my friend. No. You're aware of the fact that when Jesus went back to heaven 40 days after he came out of the grave, he walked outside Jerusalem to a mountaintop called the Mount of Olives and stood around with his 11 disciples and Matthias then was the number 12. And they stood there on the mountaintop and as he talked with them and gave them that last charge, he began to rise. He went back to heaven. Sit out of the right hand of the throne of God on high. And those disciples stood there and gazed at the hole in the sky where they had last seen the Savior. They watched him as long as they could get any glimpse of his feet. They stood there and watched the sole of his feet as they disappeared in the clouds. That was 40 days after he came out of the grave. Ten days later, just a week and three days later, ten days later, that little group of disciples plus a few other people, 120 total, was in the upper room where they'd been tarrying and waiting and praying. And suddenly there appeared in their midst the blessed Holy Spirit of God. Like the sound of a mighty rushing wind to fulfill the promise that Jesus had made himself in John 16, if I go... I will send another comforter unto thee that he may abide with you forever. I cannot abide with you forever. I'll have to go back to heaven. Forty days after I come out of the grave, I'll go back to heaven to come no more until the second advent. But he that I shall send shall abide with you forever. Now that's the blessed spirit. And the blessed spirit of God is in this building right now. He's in your body right now. He's in this pulpit right now. He's in the amen corner right now. He's in the choir right now. And he's been with me since I was a 12-year-old lad. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. And might as not how many more miles I may tread down the highway of life. There's one that's with me and about me and beneath me and behind me and in front of me and above me to lead me in every step I make. Until I hear the shout and the voice of the archangel of the trump of God. And I rise to meet King Jesus in the clouds. Now he's the one that makes Jesus real. He's another comforter. He's a comforter just like the first one was. And he's with us now and will be through the valley of the shadow of death. He is not here. He is risen as he said. Let's bow our heads and pray. Every head bowed, every eye closed. May we stand to our feet, everybody. Stand to your feet. We thank you for listening to the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. If this sermon was a blessing to you, please share and invite others to listen and join us next time on the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast.